Welcome to the Jesus on Prophecy audio resource for the Monroe, Michigan site. Here you will find all the messages from the Jesus on Prophecy series. If these messages are a blessing to you, please share them with your friends and family. We pray all of these resources will encourage you to study God's Word as never before. Tonight we're going to be looking at the mystery of the Antichrist. So as we've done in the past, please allow me one more prayer before we begin. Father, Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for your holy word. We don't have to go far to have answers to these questions. But Lord, we, we've asked for this in many, many occasions and especially during these presentations, that it will be your Holy Spirit being our guide. And again, Father, I pray for that. Pray that you guard my words, that you grant me clarity, both of expression and the, the words that I select. Guide me, Father, that the information will make sense. And above all, Lord, that you will be exalted through Jesus Christ and that we would all come to believe in your word, that it is true, a true guide for us today. In Jesus' name, amen, Father. Can you tell me which one is a fake iPhone? We'll give you guys a couple of seconds to look at it. Um, don't yell it out, don't yell it out, just, if you think you figured out which one is the, the, actually, which one is the real one, maybe I should ask it this way. The third one? I said, no, yell it out, right? <laughs> I said, don't yell it out. Do you guys have it? Which one is the real one? The third one, right? Uh, there's one that's misspelled, but the logo is correct. The one that has the right spelling, the apple is complete. This one, the apple is backwards. The third one is the only one that is the real iPhone. Was this hard or easy? Pretty easy, right? Um, how many of you guys know who this guy is? It's okay if you don't. It's actually good if you don't. Uh, he's a gentleman that had a ministry down in Florida. His last name is De Jesus. He's from Puerto Rico, the island where my wife is from. Um, and he had a vision some 30, 40 years ago, that he was Jesus. And so he began to teach people that he was Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and that he had a brand new message to give. And can you see that number on that sweater that he has? Yeah, it's, the Bible says that number is that good, but he said, listen, I am Jesus now, and my word has more authority than the Bible. And people believe that. And uh, he had a ministry that at times we perform certain miracles. Of course, the miracle that people love the most is that they seem to get rich when they followed his advice. And so he became a prosperity gospel, as it's normally called, but nothing to do with Jesus because he was Jesus. And he actually called himself the Antichrist. And there was a big church. Actually, there was millions of people worldwide that joined his movement. He has passed away about five years ago, but the movement continues under new leadership. But... This gentleman uh, was, appeared on ABC. If you go to YouTube, Jose de Jesus is his name. And uh, you'll see that uh, even his followers were encouraged to tattoo 666 on their bodies to show that they belonged to his group, his sect. Is this real or false? False, right? Pretty easy to tell the difference. Which one's the real one? 
Can you tell which one is the real one? See, this is the problem with... Um, Some people say the one at the bottom, he's kind of winking. Um, honestly, I don't know which one is the real one or the false one in this one. And if I was at a store and someone gave me a fake $100 bill, I wouldn't know how to tell visually. Have you guys ever given a, a cashier a large bill, like a $100 bill, and it took a magic marker out? Have you guys seen that? And they'll swipe it. Um, it's pretty interesting how they've had to make money so that it doesn't get uh, counterfeited all the secret watermarks and all these things that people are taught to look at. But when people, professional individuals that are out there looking for counterfeit money, they don't study the counterfeits. They don't spend hours and hours looking at the thousands of different counterfeits. You know what they, they spend their time looking at continually? The real one. They study and they memorize what the real one looks like because once they've been able to identify some pretty glaring and subtle distinctions on the real one, whenever a false one comes into their hands, it feels different, it smells different, it, 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 it has a different texture, and oh, that's missing right there, or this is not there, because they become so familiar with the true, they are able to identify the counterfeit. For the past four nights, we have been spending time looking at Jesus Christ, because tonight, we're going to be looking at the counterfeit Christ, the Antichrist. And like I said before, the reason we're making available the material is for you to review. I want you to be understanding how prophecy defines and describes the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because you and I need to understand him because Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 says that at the end times, the deception that would come would be so strong that it could carry even the elect if it were possible. The only thing that will keep the elect from getting carried away with the deceptions, with the counterfeits, is because they have become familiar with the true Jesus, with the Christ found in Scripture, in prophecy. Uh, and that's what we're going to be spending time tonight. Um, we have to understand that Satan and devil, do you guys remember what those two words meant? Enemy or adversary. In the Bible, he's also called the deceiver. In John chapter 8, Jesus calls him the father of lies. And there's one thing about lies, right? One thing that, that um, defines a lie is that you're not, you don't know when you're being lied to. It sounds like the truth. It feels like the truth. And that's where we get that statement. If it sounds too good to be true, right? If it sounds too good to be true, it's probably not. Well... The, the, the reason Satan has been so successful is because um, I've asked this question in multiple congregations and the majority of them got it pretty, pretty quickly. Let's hypothetically say that, you know, in this church, this is, of course, just an illustration. In this church, Satan preached all the time. And in this church, Jesus preached all the time. And what Jesus preached was white, pure white, pure, pure white. What would Satan preach at his church? Have you guys ever been to uh, Home Depot to buy paint? I went to, my dad and I were remodeling the basement, and my dad said, go and buy some paint at Home Depot, the white, what is white. So I went to Home Depot to look for just white. 
and I found myself with 30 different options. Eggshell, seashell, sand, dawn, and I'm like, what? <laughs> Do you have white? <laughs> and you look at them, and they have little cards, right, to kind of like, and I said, um, I just need white. And they all look white, but the labels say something else. And then the guy went behind the counter, and he brought pure white. And when he took that little card, he put it next to the seashell white. He put it next to the sand white. And you know what? Now I could see that was not white. And that's what Satan preaches. It would be way too obvious if Jesus pure, preached pure white, pure white, for, Jesus, for Satan to preach black. That would be way too obvious, right? But if Jesus were to preach pure white, Satan would be preaching sand, bleach, white, seashell, white. Go to Home Depot and see that. I, every time I walk, I walk into Home Depot, I think about Bible prophecy now because I realize that these are the counterfeits. These are the off-whites, right? And this is what we're going to be spending time tonight. We have spent four nights looking at very key components of the true Christ. Jesus himself pointed to himself in regards to prophecy. And tonight we're going to be looking at the Antichrist as, as a form of review. We saw that the Messiah and the earthly sanctuary service were very tightly intertwined. Everything about the sanctuary pointed to Jesus. In John 1.29, John the Baptist says, uh, when he sees Jesus coming toward him, behold, the what? The Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the world. That's straight reference to the sanctuary service in the Old Testament. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus speaks and says to them, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Again, referencing back to the lampstands in the sanctuary. John 6, 35, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And in the sanctuary, there were uh, 12 loaves of bread that were replaced every Sabbath and uh, had frankincense sprinkled on them. And Jesus says, that bread is me. In another instance, they were asking Jesus to make a, a miracle to feed them. He had just fed um, several thousand individuals with a little loaves and fishes. And so they followed Jesus. They're like, hey, we can get a free lunch with this guy all the time. Let's just follow him around. And Jesus is like, don't labor for this kind of bread. Your fathers ate the manna and they died. But he who eats me will live forever. I am the true bread that has come down from heaven. So Jesus was making references of all the symbols that God had left in the sanctuary. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, the apostle Paul says, Therefore Jesus, that is he, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through who? Through him. Only through Jesus, my friends. You and I have only one way to access God the Father. It is Jesus Christ, because he's the one that has paid for your sins, and now he serves as our high priest. That's why it says, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And again in Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and what else? High priest of our confession, and that is who? Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the embodiment of all these types and symbols that were found in the sanctuary service, but not just the sacrifice. Jesus was also represented by the priesthood. All the priests, but specifically about the high priest. The high priest 
was the one that oversaw the whole process in the sanctuary service. Only he was allowed to go directly into the presence of God once a year. So Jesus appropriates all of those symbols, all of those types to himself, and so did the apostles. We also learned this past week that the earthly symbols were done when Jesus came. In Mark 15, 37 through 38, this is all review so far. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple, what happened to it when Jesus died? It was torn in two. What was God signifying by this event? Did we need to bring lambs to Jerusalem to receive forgiveness of sin? That's right. When John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that means your sins too, my friend. When Jesus died on the cross, he died and paid in full for all of your sins. So because of that, Jesus is that great sacrifice. So when Jesus died on the cross, he was the real sacrifice. All of these other sacrificial sacrifices that were done by faith were done in faith, looking forward to the fulfillment of Jesus dying on the cross. Therefore, when Jesus died on the cross, God said, none of these symbols are necessary anymore because the real thing has now come. The earthly symbols finish now that the real has come. Jesus was the real sacrifice, the Lamb of God that would truly take away the sins of the world. Jesus is our real high priest, the only mediator between God and humanity. That's almost a straight straight quotation from 1 Timothy. The ceremonies of the Old, Old Testament sanctuary symbolically pointed to Jesus, but when the real came, the copies were no longer needed. That's why Jesus wasn't alarmed in Matthew chapter 24, when the disciples are showing Jesus, look at the big buildings and look at the temple, isn't it beautiful? Jesus could say to them without being concerned, you see these stones? Not one of them shall be left on top of another. The whole temple is going to be destroyed. And that's okay. Because you no longer need to come to this temple to offer sacrifices. The real sacrifice has come. Does that make sense so far, my friends? Are you with me so far? So, Jesus is now the real sacrifice. He's also the real high priest. So we have all the real work Christ has done to save humanity will be counterfeited by the Antichrist. Have you ever seen a $3 bill? A fake one? Have you tried using it at Walmart? In the Bahamas. Well, I don't think in the Bahamas they would accept it either. Um, you know what? You won't find a $3 bill in any cashier or bank. It doesn't exist. So no counterfeiter will ever try to counterfeit a $3 bill. Does that make sense? Counterfeiters only try to, try to counterfeit that which is real. You got it. A counterfeiter will only try, is only a counterfeiter if they're trying to cre- make believe that you have something that already exists. And if Satan is going to try to counterfeit Christ, he has to counterfeit what Jesus is really like. So we're going to begin this evening by dismantling five Antichrist myths. Um, There are many beliefs swirling around Christianity, and for centuries they've been swirling around. And we need to go to the Word of God and just have these five major ones. There's many more, but these five major ones dismantled and corrected by the Word of God. Some of the myths that we have regarding the Antichrist. One of the, number one myth is that the Antichrist will come in the future. Many good, good-meaning Christians and well-meaning, well-intentioned pastors uh, have been teaching, and authors 
that Antichrist will come sometime in the future and that we will only have one Antichrist. But what does the Bible have to say about those two statements? 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 19 says this, Little children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that who is coming? The Antichrist. And even when? Now, this was written over 2,000 years ago. Over two millennia. Antichrist is coming even now. How many Antichrists? Many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. So to our dear beloved brothers and sisters who think that the Antichrist is going to come sometime in the future and there's going to be one Antichrist, does, that, does the Bible validate that teaching? Not at all. We, we just looked at one verse, and it's not a very difficult verse to, to miss. There's an Antichrist that is coming, and even now are many Antichrists that have come. There were Antichrists present at the time of John, and John says it's not just going to be one, there's going to be several. You know, if you saw a $100 bill, a fake one, in the 1960s, would you find that same exact counterfeit today in 2019? A counterfeit? Would they look the same? What's the one thing about counterfeiters that they're continually trying to do? Improve. Just when they figure out, oh, they figured out this is fake, or that is fake, they try to get it better and closer to the original. That's why there are many antichrists. Satan, throughout history, would try to perfect his trade. And he's gotten better. And he's gotten so good that the antichrist of the last couple of centuries that he's been using have gone completely undetected, except for the prophetic eye of God's word. Number three, the antichrist comes from outside the church. It's going to be an antagonism to the church. 1 John 2, 18 through 19 says, They went out from us. This is the Apostle John talking about us as the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So does the Antichrist come from outside and attack the church, or does it come from within the church? From within. It comes from out of us, from us. Myth number four says, will openly oppose Christ. Matthew 24, 5 through 20, and 24, Jesus says, For many will come against my name, in my name. That is a very important statement by Jesus. The Antichrist is not going to be trying to attack Christ. He's going to try to come impersonating Christ. They will come in my name saying what? Don't believe in Christ? Don't worship Christ? What are they going to be saying? I am the Christ. And will do what? Deceive many. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to do what? Deceive, if possible, even the elect. So we have already four myths about the Antichrist that the Bible clearly does not agree with. And the last one, that it appears after the second coming or after the, the rapture takes place, um, many Christians have believed and been taught that. But does the Bible teach that the Antichrist shows up after the rapture or the second coming? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-4. through 4. Now, brothers, concerning the what event? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. 
either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now, give me the, what day is Paul speaking about when he says the day of Christ? What event is he referring to? Second coming. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day. And which day is that? Second coming will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above, above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is what? God. Jesus says the Antichrist would come telling people, I am the Christ. And Christ claimed to be God. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. And this Antichrist would try to seek to counterfeit and present himself to be just like Jesus did. So we have already five myths that the Bible does not support. And this last one is key. Many Christians have been taught that the rapture takes place and then the Antichrist shows up. But the Bible, even from the days of Paul, he was teaching that that day, the second coming, would not happen unless first that man of sin was revealed, that son of perdition. And by the way, all scripture really is such a beautiful unit. That expression, the son of perdition, is only found in two places in the Bible. And that's it in the New Testament. Um, this phrase, son of perdition, is only found in John chapter 17, verse 12. In that passage, Jesus is having his last prayer before Gethsemane. And he's thanking the Father that he hasn't lost any of the disciples. He says, those whom you gave I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Which is the only disciple that Jesus lost, that Jesus is here calling son of perdition? Judas Iscariot. What did Judas Iscariot do? He betrayed him. He sold him, right? Now, was Judas Iscariot a Roman pagan soldier? He was a Jew. He was not just a Jew, but what position, what social group did he belong to? He was one of Jesus' own disciples. And Jesus calls him the son of perdition, and Paul uses that same term to refer to the Antichrist. This is not someone that's going to be openly, overtly opposing Christ the night Judas betrayed Jesus. What did, he, what did he use to betray Jesus? A kiss. And he said, Rabbi, Rabbi. So we have now from the Bible a picture of the Antichrist that might be a bit different from what we have gotten from the movies or from other places. But ultimately, we need to receive the revelation of prophecy from the scriptures themselves. So here are some biblical truths regarding the Antichrist that we've just covered briefly. The Antichrist are the enemy's agents of what, my friends? Deception. There have been many Antichrists throughout history, even from the times of the disciples. So it's not someone in the future alone. God, Satan has been perfecting his craft. The end-time Antichrist will be manifested before the second coming of Jesus. That is a very important detail, my friends. And Paul just uh, verified that from us from 1 Thessalonians. The Antichrist is not revealed in the scripture as someone who will openly oppose Christ, rather claims to be Christ. The Antichrist really is a system seeking to pervert the gospel and take the place of God and Christ. 
So we've, we've covered some territory, we've reviewed a lot of the material we covered, we've di dismantled some of these myths, and now we're going to be diving a little bit deeper into Bible prophecy. Um, as a bit of a review, there was this opening night, that's when you found out that I like pizza, um, because I, I shared how Daniel chapter 2 is that pizza, though, the platform upon all the other uh, prophecies built upon. You have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and Europe all being delineated in this one image. And that was Daniel chapter 2. And that night, I'd share with you that this is a very important prophecy because Daniel chapter 2 becomes the template by which all the other prophecies build and expand. What God does is He repeats the same material, this goes over the same chronology of time, but gives way more details than He does the first time. We're going to see that this evening. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 3 to 7, uh, we saw this also the opening night. And I told you, tonight we will be looking at these passages. Daniel sees four great beasts come up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And four beasts, great came up from, and oh, I'm sorry, um, had a lion and had eagle's wings. Um, this image is taken from Ishtar's gate. And uh, I told you um, during the, this past week, I have two friends that just visited the museum in Berlin, and they took pictures of this gate, and they took pictures of that lion, actually. These lions were all over the gate of Ishtar, which was the entrance to the Babylonian um, city, the city of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar and Nabopolassar, his father, they loved to compare themselves with the lion because, of course, the lion is the king, and they felt that they owned the territory. So it's fitting that the Bible would connect something that was all throughout Babylon. The lion was a dominant figure all throughout Babylon, and archaeology has revealed that. And so it's interesting and, and makes sense why the Bible would compare Babylon with a lion. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, was raised up on one side and had three ribs on its mouth between its teeth. Now Babylon was followed by Medo-Persia, and we see that represented now not by metals but by an animal. And then thirdly, you have this uh, third animal, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, I'll just show this to you, because we're going to look at the comparison in just a bit. Babylon is represented first by a head of metal, of gold, followed by a lion with eagle's wings. But then the second metal is represented by a bear and the third one by, by this leopard with four heads. And it's interesting that in Daniel chapter 7, unlike Daniel chapter 2, no kingdoms are mentioned by name. Daniel chapter 7 is going to be focusing on other things. But God is not going to leave us in the dark in regards to this. Because as you may be wondering, well, how do we know? How can we use the Bible to interpret this? We have... Daniel chapter 8 giving us what Daniel chapter 7 does not. What we have in Daniel chapter 8 is the same material being re repeated, but now the names of the empires are once again mentioned. We don't have to go outside of the Bible to have them um, interpreted. So where, whereas we have the head of gold being linked to the lion in Babylon, it is mentioned by name in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 8 doesn't mention it because um, it's already, it had already passed. Babylon had already been conquered by Medo-Persia. 
By the time of the Medo-Persian, which was the Silver Kingdom, it is mentioned by name in Daniel chapter 5, verse 31, that it would follow Babylon. Babylon would come first, and then the next kingdom mentioned is Medo-Persia. And that kingdom is mentioned in Daniel chapter 8 again, following these previous kingdoms. The, the third one, Greece, is not mentioned in Daniel 2, is not mentioned in Daniel 7, but it is mentioned by name in Daniel 8, verse 21. So the Bible fills in all of these other gaps that if we wanted to use only the Bible to interpret, we would find all of these things interpreting themselves within Scripture. So God is simply repeating with greater detail. Uh, the head of gold, the arms and chest of silver, and the thighs of bronze are the same as the lion, the bear, and the leopard. And it's the same as the goat and the ram mentioned in Daniel chapter 8. God is using these symbols, and we don't have tonight time to explain why God switches up with these symbols. But God leaves some clues to let us know we are going in the right direction. This fourth beast is unique because it is not mentioned or identified in any of the, the chapters. The fourth beast is not mentioned by name, but we have a clue. After this, I saw in the night visions that behold the fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, and he had huge, what kind of teeth? Iron teeth. And that's the clue that God leaves for us. All the other animals were symbolic, but wings are wings. Heads are heads. Those are natural. But can you think of an animal in nature that naturally has iron teeth? There aren't any. So God in this fourth beast lets us know he is speaking about or referencing back to the image in Daniel chapter 2. God is a God of mercy, and he leaves us a clue right here with the metal that is an identical metal here. And it just so happens that it's one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, just lines up perfectly. All of these clues are left in scripture so that we know we are heading into the right direction of interpretation. These are parallel revelations, one revealing more details as we progress, as we move forward. And of course, Daniel chapter 2 does mention um, the feet, and it mentions 10 toes. And that number is important. It could have just said, and the toes. But the fact that it mentions that there were 10 toes parallels with this fourth beast, because out of this fourth beast proceed 10 horns. It's important because as Daniel was considering the horns, there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. We have Medo-Persia, excuse me, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, but no one conquers Rome. Daniel chapter 2, we saw that. No one conquered Rome. Rome fragmented and divided itself. And what used to be the Roman Empire, now we call that part of the world what? Europe. Europe. That's the ten horns. After Rome, Rome would divide itself, and it was, it's, today we would call it Rome. I mean, Europe, we don't call it divided Rome. And Daniel says that from the ten horns, from wherever the ten horns would be, this little one would be coming up among them, whom before three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, which is important, because it means this. The end-time Antichrist would come from divided Rome, Europe. And many Christians are looking for the Antichrist to come from the Middle East. When the Bible says, among them, these ten horns that come out of the Roman Empire, as Rome would divide itself and fragment itself into the Germanic tribes, these, this part of the world, from that milieu, 
the Antichrist, this system, this method of deception that Satan had been perfecting over centuries, it would come from that part of the world. The reason we have so much diversity of interpretation is not because the Bible is confusing or inconsistent. It's because Satan has infiltrated into our churches and provided methods of interpretation that have, you know, used the news or all these other methods that have not been congruent with the scriptures. What we want is to allow the scripture. So far, what we've looked at has been strictly coming from the word of God. And there, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and mouth speaking pompous words. You know, Daniel chapter 2 simply had metal, 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 but he spends a lot of time on that stone. The emphasis of Daniel 2 was about how God wants to dwell with us and how when his kingdom comes, it will undo all these kingdoms. That was the big point in Daniel chapter 2. But in Daniel chapter 7, it moves kind of quickly through the different animals. But when it comes to this little horn, it spends the majority of the chapter focusing on this little horn. It's important. And there are two qualities that this horn has. It, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and mouth speaking pompous words. What does that phrase, eyes of a man, mean? It's a, it's a means of contrast. It's, it's identifying that he has eyes that are limited by humanity. And in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 6, it says, And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though he had been slain, who in, who in the book of Revelation is represented by the Lamb? Jesus. Specifically because it says the Lamb as though he had been slain. Having seven horns and seven what? Seven eyes, which are what? The seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, all of this, is this literal? Is, is in heaven literally a Lamb with the throat slit? Is that literal or is that symbolic? Symbolic. And you've interpreted the symbol correctly. This Lamb is symbolic of who? Of Jesus. Now, what does it mean that he had seven horns? A horn in the Bible is symbolic of kingdom, and a seven is perfection or completeness. Jesus came to establish God's kingdom, which is a perfect kingdom of righteousness. Jesus came and preached about the kingdom of God. Why should I compare the kingdom of God? It's like a mustard seed, it's like a woman that loses a coin. Jesus continually spoke about the kingdom and how he was bringing the, the, the reign of God, the kingdom of God, to people's hearts. He was not establishing an earthly kingdom. He was establishing a spiritual kingdom in people's hearts through faith. So that's what the seven horns mean. Now, as I, said, as I mentioned earlier, the, the number seven in the book of Revelation is simply symbolic of complete, completeness and perfection. And we get that from the book of Genesis. When God completed creation in seven days, he said, this is very good. It is perfect. It is complete. So the kingdom of God is a perfect kingdom, and it is through Jesus Christ that that kingdom once again will reign here on planet Earth. What about these seven spirits? Again, it's not numerical, but symbolic. Seven means perfect, complete. Jesus was given the perfect spirit of God. When did Jesus receive the Spirit of God? In what life event that he experienced? Baptism. In the, his baptism, we saw this this past week. That's why I told you this material is so important. We saw that when Jesus came out of the water, the heavens were open, 
And the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, descended upon him in the form of a, of a dove. He was anointed. In the next chapter, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, I have been anointed with the Spirit of God to preach the gospel to the poor. Remember when we spent that night looking at Jesus saying those, those things? So this is a symbolic um, language pointing to the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit that God gives. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit here is referred to as being eyes. Now, are these the eyes of man or the eyes of God? Eyes of God. Because the Spirit is with a capital S, right? It is divine. The Holy Spirit is being symbolically represented as being the eyes of God. The little horn, what kind of eyes did the little horn have? Eyes of a man. That's why I told you, this revelation is highlighting a contrast. In the book of Revelation, we're pointing to the real Christ, and the real Christ had the eyes of God. He had the Holy Spirit. But this little horn, this, this counterfeit Christ, would have eyes, but these would not be the eyes of God. These would be the eyes of man. We're going to see in just a bit. We're just putting pieces together. Don't, don't, just keep, keep pressing on. We're going to get this, put all the pieces together in just a bit. Uh, we see this further in John chapter 16, 13 through 15. What does it mean that there was the eyes of God versus the eyes of man? However, Jesus, Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he, the Holy Spirit, will guide you into what? All truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So he will reveal to us prophecy, and the Holy Spirit is really the agent by which God will guide us into what? All truth. Who is the guide of, who is the authoritative guide to teach church, the church truth? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation is symbolized as being what part of the body? The eyes. But the eyes of men? The eyes of God. The Antichrist, on the other hand, will have a teaching guide. But it will not be the Holy Spirit. It will be a human source. It will be the eyes of men. John 16, 13 through 15, He will glorify me, for He will take of what is mine and declare it to you, all things that the Father are, has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit, listen carefully, my friends. The Holy Spirit will never teach you to pray to him. I'm going to say that again. The Holy Spirit will never teach you to pray to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will lead you to the Bible and will help you understand how Jesus taught us to pray. And the way Jesus taught us to pray is to say our Father. The Holy Spirit helps us when we pray, Paul says. The Holy, the Holy Spirit interprets our prayers, and actually it's such a tender picture because the Apostle says that there are times in our lives where the, where the fear, the anguish, the frustration is so great, all we can do is groan. All that can come out of us is sighing, sobs, and the Holy Spirit takes the sounds we make and turns them into prayers before God. Isn't that encouraging? 
There are times that we have no words to express to God the frustration, the heartache that we have, but we have the advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit. He helps us in our prayers. Paul says that there are times that we don't even know how we ought to pray, and that's okay. Continue praying because the Holy Spirit is praying alongside with you. And He's taking our faulty groans and sometimes lack of ability to express exactly how we feel, but the Holy Spirit talks to to the Father for us. But we're not to pray to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit actually points to Jesus, and Jesus points to who? To the Father. That's how we know is the true teaching from Scripture. So people that will tell you to talk to the Holy Spirit and teach and, and pray to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not going to be like, I'm not going to listen to you. God is a God of love. But tonight we're learning things about the Bible that helps us understand how to relate to God properly and what the role of each of these, uh, the Godhead, has in relationship to salvation. So, in the book of Acts, it's an amazing book. It really begins to help us understand what it means to have the eyes of God versus the eyes of a man. In Acts chapter 1, verse 2, it says, He, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to to the apostles. That's Jesus. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You shall receive power when the what? The Holy Spirit has come upon you. Acts chapter 1, verse 16, which, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. So the Holy Spirit gave David prophetic truths. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is directly mentioned at least 56 times in the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, almost double. Clearly, God's earthly appointed representative in the church was always to be who? The Holy Spirit. The little horn would seek to counterfeit the Holy Spirit's divine role as teacher and guide of God's church, replacing it with what kind of a role? A human role. Because in Daniel chapter 7, that little horn had eyes, but not the eyes of God, the eyes of I'm a man. It would seek to replace what God has given to us with something that God invented, with, that, that humans invented, rather. I'm sorry about that. Daniel 7 and 13, we also have this, this uh, statement that this little horn would have uh, mouth-speaking, pompous words. And that word pompous, it just means grandiose. Uh, it means uh, I, am, I am all that. I am great. Similar to the words that we read in Isaiah chapter 14, when Lucifer said in his heart, I will ascend into the Most High. I will set my throne above the stars of God. I will be like who? Like the Most High. Those are pompous words. Words of arrogance. Words saturated with pride. This little horn would speak pompous words. Now, the beasts that we saw in Daniel chapter 7 all come together in Revelation chapter 13. Remember when we talked about this on night number 1? We saw that in Revelation 13 it mentioned these four beasts, and then we went to Daniel. We've just come out of Daniel understanding who these seven beasts are. And now we're going to be going to Revelation 13. The beast in Revelation 13 is the Antichrist. That's the Antichrist's power. Is what John said, many Antichrists throughout history, and all Satan has done is perfected. Oh man, I messed up on that one. They caught me on that one. Let me perfect it. Oh, they caught me there. Let me make it better. Let me make it better. Let me make it better. So by the time we get to our days, the Antichrist has just gone completely undetected. 
unidentified. Revelation 13, 1-5, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Where did we see these three beasts? Daniel, what chapter? Chapter 7. This part of Revelation, remember opening night, we talked about how Revelation has over 75% of the content in Revelation comes from what part of of the Bible? Old Testament. And a very special part of the Old Testament, what book? The book of Daniel. So, Everything that we've learned from, Revelation, from Daniel chapter 7, we can apply safely to Revelation 13 because we have used the Bible for interpretation, not the newspaper. And I saw a beast rising out of the, of the sea, having seven, horns and ten, head, seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and listen carefully, and on his head a blasphemous name. That is a synonymous statement to the pompous words that the little horn speaks. A blasphemous name or name that is blasphemous is a synonymous statement to pompous words. Words similar to that of Satan. Let's look at this word blasphemy. And how, how can blasphemy become pompous words? Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Let's have the Bible help us identify what does blasphemy mean. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, saying, Why does this man speak what? Blasphemies like this. Who can forgive sins but who? God alone. Who is the only one that can forgive sins, my friends? Can I forgive your sins? But if I claim to be able to forgive your sins, those will be pompous words because they're blasphemous. I'm speaking pompous words because I am pretending to have attributes and prerogatives that only belong to who? To God alone. Does that make sense? So the pompous words go hand in hand with blasphemous words because they're speaking the same thing. Now, could Jesus forgive sins? Yes, he could. John chapter 1 describes Jesus as, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John chapter 1, 14 says, And the Word became flesh. So, Jesus could forgive sins because he had the authority. Can a human being do that, though? So their theology was right. Only only God can forgive sins. They could not recognize who they were in front of. John chapter 10, verse 33, the Jews answered answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for what, my friends? Blasphemy. Here it is, another definition. And because you, being a man, make yourself to be what? God. So blasphemy, a pompous word, is when a human being claims to be who? God. Now we saw at the beginning uh, that gentleman, De Jesus, Jose De Jesus, he was blaspheming and he was speaking pompous words. So he was an antichrist. But prophecies begin to point to some, some, a, a masterpiece that Satan for centuries has been perfecting and will be manifested and will be used by him to bring deception in the last days. Daniel 7, 25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Here's another clue. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and laws. Then the saints shall be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. And all we're going to focus right now is that this little horn persecutes who? The saints. Now, I didn't know this until Columbus, Ohio, while I was church planting. And in my daily devotions, I discovered that this is also blasphemy when you persecute the the saints. 
Paul in 1 Timothy 1.13 says, Although I was formerly a what? A blasphemer. So let me ask you, was Paul going around trying to forgive people's sins? No. Was Paul going around claiming that he was God? No. Was Paul persecuting Christ followers thinking he was doing God's service? Yes, he was. Was he persecuting God's faithful in the name of God? Yes, he was. And that he calls himself to have been a blasphemer. To have, in the name of God, be killing the people that are actually being faithful to God. That is a blasphemer in in the Bible. Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus confronts Paul when he was persecuting the Christians. And Paul falls to the ground and hears Jesus saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my church? This is a very tender statement of Jesus. Was Paul persecuting Jesus? Was Paul persecuting the church? When Satan touches you, Jesus takes it personal. You know, my younger brother was bullied by a kid. Uh, I shared that here uh, some weeks ago. He was bullied when we first came into this country because we didn't speak good English. And ironically, he was bullied by another kid that also didn't speak English very well. And uh, every day after school, my brother was getting bullied and bullied. I didn't know about this. And so my brother decided, I'm not going to school anymore. I said, Marcelo, what's, what's happening? There's this kid named Ismael. He kicks my, kicks my book bag, and he pushes me, and he insults me, and he's the one that's supposed to translate for me in class, and he doesn't tell me the assignments, and the teacher's mad at me. She thinks I'm lazy, and it's his fault. And as my brother's telling me this, you know what's happening to me? My blood pressure's going up, and I'm already having visions of what I'm going to do to Ismael after school that day because he was touching my little brother. You know who he was messing with? It's exactly what I said, Ismael, you touch my brother again, you kick him again, I'm going to kick you hard. This is before my baptism, by the way. (laughs) I don't know, maybe, I don't know. Let's just leave it at that. But I told Ismael, anything you do to him, you're doing to me. I feel it. It hurts me to see my little brother afraid like this. It hurts me to understand now why my little brother will be in his room not wanting to come and eat dinner with the family. Well, he was sad, maybe even depressed. Who knows? And when I began to understand and put two and two together, what was done to my brother, it was as if he had done it to me. And that's how Jesus feels about you. When Satan hurts you, when Satan persecutes you, when Satan oppresses you, Jesus feels it as if he was being done to himself. He cares for us. He's not in heaven aloof. He felt it as if it was done to him. We have a merciful Savior that is not in heaven saying, I'm, so, I'm sure glad I'm out of there. He is with us, suffering and encouraging us to press on, to move forward in faith. That's the kind of Jesus we serve. Identify marks of the Antichrist. We covered a lot. Here they are. 11 marks of the Antichrist. Number one, he would come after Rome would divide, what we call today Europe. Number two, would come from the area of Europe. From among them, Daniel 7 says, from the ten horns that became Rome divided. Number three, would appear before the second coming of Jesus. Is a system, not necessarily an individual person, seeking to counterfeit who? Jesus. Number five, seek to counterfeit Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. That's a very important point, my friends. It would be pointless for a counterfeit to try to counterfeit something Jesus has not done. 
So this, counter, this, this Antichrist would seek to counterfeit Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. He would seek to counterfeit Jesus' priestly intercession and the Holy Spirit representation of God on earth and the Holy Spirit authoritative role to teach and guide believers. The, Holy, the, the Antichrist would try to see, replace Jesus and replace the, word, the Holy Spirit. Number nine, claim prerogatives to forgive sins, which only God can do. Number 10, persecute God's people blasphemously in God's name. And 11, think to change God's times and laws. And so we will conclude this in part two.